0: I remember one particular session, and I recount this in the book, but just sitting in the car afterwards with my head on the steering wheel and just feeling like, I can't, this isn't living. This feels terrible. And what is it? I need to understand what it is. And I started looking for the behaviors in my own life where I was practicing this sort of like, I will be above reproach. I will be so good that no one. Can come for me, and recognizing that across the board and my friends, this instinct of women that I wasn't seeing among men, and you see it in society. There are lots of books about sort of individual parts of how women are prescribed by patriarchy, whether it's in the financial system and unequal pay or food, et cetera. But I was like, this has to be a bigger system.
1: Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on
2: a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a
1: new story on earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shana Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome
2: to the Time of the Feminine podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Lauren and I are thrilled to have Elise Lowen on the podcast today. She is a writer, editor, and podcast host who lives in LA with her husband, Rob, and their two sons, Max and Sam. She is the host of Pulling the Thread, a podcast focused on pulling apart the stories we tell about who we are, and then putting those threads back together. Ultimately, Elise is a seeker and synthesizer. Pulling together wisdom, traditions, cultural history, and a deep knowledge of healing modalities to unlock new ways to contextualize who we are and why we're here. She's also the author of the upcoming book that Lauren and I are very excited about, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins, and The Price Women Pay to Be Good. The book weaves together history, memoir, and cultural criticism to explore the way patriarchy lands in the bodies of women and embeds itself in our consciousness, and what we then police in ourselves and each other. You might recognize her voice from the Goop podcast. Previously, she was the chief content officer of Goop. While at Goop, Elise co-hosted the Goop podcast and the Goop Lab on Netflix. Elise has done plenty of other things. She is incredible, and she's also interviewed some of the brightest minds and hearts of our time. So Elise, it is such an honor to have you
0: here. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Likewise, there's no place I'd rather be than in the Time of the Feminine. Let's be honest about that.
3: (laughs) Well, the Time of the Feminine is glad to have you (laughs) in general. I'm speaking on behalf of the world right now and all of the exploration you've been doing that has led to who you are, and the space you've held, and the questions you've asked, and now the book that you've written. Thank you. Thank you for the courage that it takes to actually look within and deprogram what the patriarchy has instilled in us to free the authentic voice. Thank you.
0: No, thank you for noticing that. And it's interesting work because it's, as I'm sure you guys know and have explored and anyone listening has grappled with, it's We understand like patriarchy is such a boogeyman in our culture and we hear that word and it's like, what does that even mean? And then we look for the overt evidence of it, right? The misogynistic boss or systems of oppression. But the reality is, is that it also lives in us in a way that Mm -hmm. can be suppressed in shadow and not necessarily part of our conscious awareness and yet is incredibly limiting because it's us it's within us it's we are holding ourselves back to adhere to these cultural codes without really even understanding where they came from or what they are
3: yeah we like to think of it here as a paradigm like the waters that we swim in that we don't even realize we're swimming in that we've started ingesting and becoming a part of us mm-hmm. and it's so ancient and it's so inherited and there is this moment where Things were really hot and heavy socially because of all of the things that have been happening. And there was like a very popular meme around that was like, fuck patriarchy. And Shane and I were really sitting with it. We're like, yeah, fuck patriarchy. But actually, we're really saying fuck great. We're also actually saying fuck humanity's greatest wound. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And so for us, it was like, let's heal humanity's greatest wound. Let's heal patriarchy within us and around us. And it really seems like, this new book of yours, is is that process in action?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a wise insight. And patriarchy is our greatest wound. And yet, I think we also have a cultural tendency to sort of go so hard at these structures and burn them to the ground, rightly or wrongly. But part of it is like, actually, maybe there's a more gentle process here to bring ourselves and our culture into balance and to think about the elements of masculinity, divine masculine tendencies, right? Order, structure, theoretically truth. How do we preserve those elements? We need our culture needs structure. We need not dominance-based hierarchy, but almost like a holarchy, to quote Ken Wilber, something that is Affiliative, partnership base, But yes, parents need to guide their children. We need structure in our society as well and organizing principles. But how do we take where we are at this moment of time and bring it into balance and bring up the feminine in each of us and certainly in our culture and in our men to... Create the next evolution, which would not inherently be patriarchy, but it's sort of how do we actually take what's structurally sound here? How do we do we take it back to the foundation or is there something usable here from which we can build a more equitable, more balanced society and civilization?
1: Because it's certainly the place I want to live. You know, that's why I do this work. It's because I want to live in that world. I see it. I feel like I know it inside of my being and I want to create that for all of us.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. It's interesting cuz I you talk to a lot of of women, some men too, who who sort of go immediately too, to this like, well, it used to be matriarchies. We need a matriarchy. And it's like, well, actually there are matrilineal cultures that emerged across the globe. There's never been a matriarchy in the sense of a dominance-based, oppressive hierarchy. You know, culture was affiliative, partnership-based, more nuanced within gender. And also, there's part of me that wants to also resist that tendency of, like, if women are in charge, everything will be restored and everything will be better. It's like, no, 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 actually, we we got to move past this idea of dominance. And... It's toxic femininity is a thing. And women can also be toxically masculine. This isn't about women and men. This is about, as you guys know, energy and intent. My question is,
3: what was the painful initiation that had you wake up to the fact that there was internalized misogyny, internalized patriarchy within you, too, and that spurred your desire? To take accountability and transform that?
0: Yeah. You know, I think the most obviously, I sort of identified it in different parts of my life somewhat simultaneously and was grappling with big questions about who am I and what am I doing here and how can I live my life in a way that's not destructive and that's not promoting or continuing to push some of these patterns and and cultural beliefs forward. That's been something I've been thinking about in a way for my whole life. But it really started, I have a, I tend to hyperventilate. I started doing this in my 20s. It's a familial pattern. My mom used to do it. So did my aunt. And for chronic hyperventilation, you are actually over-breathing, but your body feels like you're going to die. Like you can't take a deep breath. And it's exhausting. And... I was in a pattern of hyperventilation and I had been in it for maybe two months, month or two, which wasn't entirely uncommon. But this particular one, I, I was talking to my therapist and I was like, I don't understand. You know, I have a high powered career, two healthy children, I'm a good person. I try really hard. I what is this? Why do I feel so Oppressed in this moment, like I'm gonna die. I'm gonna asphyxiate. and what is this? like how why do I feel this way? I don't know how to outrun this clearly. I don't know how to outperform it. I don't know how to out achieve it. Is there any moment when I will feel like I've done enough and because as much as, you know, it's driven by stress, anxiety, etc., but there was this idea in me that I could somehow do enough to be calm, be safe. And, and it also, I'm sure many women can relate to this, it created a really strange experience in my life where people would always say, oh, you're so calm and you're so collected and reassuring. And not that those things aren't true but underneath that i couldn't breathe and you know was being this the feeling of panic and anxiety that follows that is palpable and yet i just sort of appeared like a sedate sleepy yawning person and so i remember one particular session And I recount this in the book, but just sitting in the car afterwards with my head on the steering wheel and just feeling like, I can't, this isn't living. This feels terrible. And what is it? I need to understand what it is. And I started looking for the behaviors in my own life where I was practicing this sort of like, I will be above reproach. I will be so good that no one can come for me. And recognizing that across the board and my friends, this instinct of women that I wasn't seeing among men. And you see it in society. There are lots of books about sort of individual parts of how women are prescribed by patriarchy, whether it's in the financial system and unequal pay or food, et cetera. But I was like, this has to be a bigger system, you know, in the same way that I think culturally we came to understand systemic racism through the work of people like Isabel Wilkerson or Ibram X Kendi or all of the educators in that space. who are like, this isn't, this is in us. It is baked into who we are, every interaction and all of our cultural systems. And so I knew that that had to exist for women, that this way that we circumscribe our own lives. And I'll get to what we do to other women as well. But I needed to, I really wanted to, I sort of vowed to myself in that moment that I would figure this out. Otherwise, I honestly felt like I was going to die. And not only is it something that I've observed in other women I know, the same tendency to sort of armor ourselves up in perfection and goodness, but we can be so vicious with each other in a way that's painful to I hate even talking about it in a way because there are so many memes about it. And yet we all know that they're true. When you look at the social, when you look at the studies, sociology studies coming out, women are as hard on other women as men are hard on women. Sometimes women are harder on other women. And it doesn't, you know, we can look at the 2016 election. We can, but it's, it's typically this like, I don't like her. I don't like her. And really, what I wanted to understand is like, what is in that package of I don't like her? Because to me, I mean, we learn this about our children, right? Don't criticize them as people. You talk about their behavior. And when I would push people, like, what is, why would you, what do you not like about her? Like, what's the behavior? What is she doing? I'd hit sort of a wall of like, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't, I just don't like her. And The revelation for me was like, there's something that she's doing that you don't like and you can't articulate. And I believe that the women that we have that reaction to, it's because that woman is doing something that we would not allow ourselves to do. And it comes from this, like, how dare she? I would never allow myself to do that. Who does she think she is? I am going to swat her down and put her in her place if I am confined. She best be confined to? And this is, again, not part of our conscious awareness, but I think this is what we see throughout society.
1: I mean, it's so true. I've had to encounter it with myself. I'm just like, oh, she's actually showing me something that I want to embody that I have yet to fully step into because I'm afraid of what stepping into that arena would feel like. I'm afraid that other people will talk about me or judge me or. Shame me, and I'm curious, like you know the real question that we're always trying to get to is, how did we get here? Like what is your hypothesis of what happened to i mean the many things that have happened, you know, for women to be like this with one another, but then ultimately, why this system of patriarchy has been set up in the way that it has, and what
0: that amount of control actually does Mhm, yeah. So I wrote a chapter in the book, A Brief History of Patriarchy, where I was trying to pull together, and it's obviously it's so complex, and patriarchy emerged not in every part of the world, but in certain parts of the world at different times and in different subtly different formations. And so there are a lot, the bibliography of my book is dense, and my endnotes are a quarter of the length of, a friend of mine got to the end of it, and she was like, oh, I'm so bombed. I thought I had 25% more of the book, but it's endnotes. So for the nerds out there, I, there's a, the endnotes are deep, particularly in the section about patriarchy and how it came to be. And ultimately, we'll never completely know because we don't have written records from that time and we're constantly evolving and, and learning more. And there are some amazing books about this and amazing anthropologists who have had big theories in the way that men have always been able to have big unproven theories, who there's one in particular, Maria Gambutas, who had this theory that she was a UCLA professor. She, You, guys, I'm sure, are familiar with her work because a lot of it was about goddess and these figurines that might have been for birthing or dolls. They don't really know. But she was destroyed. Just her reputation was destroyed because she had this theory that in the Paleolithic period, that's sort of the the place where the Roman Christian, Judeo-Christian patriarchy emerged, was more of an, an affiliative partnership culture. And these Kurgans came down from the steppes of Russia, and they're called Kurgans because of the burial mounds. And these were predominantly men, and now we know this to be true, sort of warring groups out of the steps and there was a lot of ecological environmental movement at this time places becoming fertile that hadn't been fertile before other people being driven out for for environmental reasons again we don't totally know but that these warring primarily warring men came down into this period and into this area and enslaved people women children killed, raped, pillaged, all of the typical things that we would now think of. And that was sort of the beginning of patriarchy, the enslavement of women and children and domesticable animals. And she was destroyed for this theory. And now recent DNA evidence suggests that she was right. And it's, it's stunning and chilling and just like, thank you. And her work is incredible. And it's not that anything, everyone, there's a different standard often for women of perfection. And for all of these anthropologists, you know, they're right about some things and they're wrong about others. But we don't really move forward without having these conversations. and, And so much of the story of who we tell about who we are has been told by men have a certain view of the inevitability of patriarchy this is the only system that we've known throughout the world and so they ascribe an inevitability about it that's not accurate and so anyway so that was the beginning sort of the the, we learned culture learned how to enslave people you know and before that there's lots of uh, culture was incredibly creative. I don't know if you read The Dawn of Everything by David Wengrow and David Graeber, but it's like a retelling primarily of, of the U.S., but just how creative culture is and how many different forms of society emerge. And yet we make it so tidy. Right. And the thing that's really interesting about all of this work is that women will recognize and men that we're constantly in these debates about nature and culture, and we conflate the two. And so there are all these ideas about what it is to be a woman and what it is to be a man that are predicated on culture, really. Or, and we'll never know, right? So, you know, I was talking, I never can say the site, Toblecki, the big site in Turkey to black people will recognize the word and I'm slaughtering the pronunciation. I apology, apologize. And when they, this was in Turkey, this is a paleolithic site and Stanford has done a lot of recent r- work on it. And I was talking to Angela Sayini about this site. She just, she has a new book that just came out called the patriarchs. It's small and wonderful and about patriarchy all over the world. And she's written She writes about gender-based science and race-based science in a really compelling, she's a fascinating, brilliant journalist. Anyway, Angela was talking about Toblecki and how when they have looked at it again, men and women in this prehistoric site are the same size, more or less. They both have the same amount of soot in their lungs, which would suggest that they're spending an equal amount of time inside and kitchens. They have the same diet, so that no no favoring of men in terms of calorie or nutrient-dense food, which you see in other parts of the world. It's a really fascinating sight because it also suggests that, you know, all of these qualities that we think of as feminine, demure, small, slight men, dominant, huge, are, have been potentially bred into us as culture. And that's where we see how culture starts to become nature, where these qualities of femininity become natural mandates rather than cultural ideals. Like you're not really a good woman unless you espouse these virtues. So it's a fascinating and complex story. And I highly recommend that people dig into it because it's also like a great mystery novel in a way
3: amen to that and it gets really really fascinating to me in particular when we take all this archaeological evidence maria gambutas's work other people's work and then you compare it side to side by the judeo-christian narrative. That mm-hmm. was taking place. That was being cultivated at that time, mm-hmm. and you put history, like what we know about culture in old Europe, what we knew about culture then, and we put it kind of next to like the time periods where, at the story of Adam and Eve was being written, and like all of the different cosmology around our origin story emerged with these different acts, whether they were acts of violence, whether they were, do you know historian Anne Baring? No, do you know her work. She has a, she has a theory that basically, it's not just her theory. I think this is something that she's gathered from multiple people, but that the flood of Noah was real yeah, and it was actually multiple floods that happened. And at that period, it was such a massive disaster on the planet. There was also some skepticism of the mother and Mm. this like, idea that that began to emerge in the consciousness of needing to dominate nature which then kind of evolved and led to the domination of the feminine in general the kurgans all this whole thing it's really interesting to compare the evolution of like the writing of the old testament into the new testament and all of that and what the like social context and how that has been seeped into us culturally about how we relate to ourselves and god and nature yeah and so this segues Really beautifully into your book that speaks about the seven deadly sins. So I'd love to first ask you, just for those who don't know, what are the seven deadly sins? Where do they come from? What is this this concept that got brought into a deep, deep, deep aspect of of anything that has been touched by
0: you know Judeo Christian influence, Mm -hmm. which is basically all of Western, basically yeah, all of Western society. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And to your point, I think, you know, Joseph Campbell writes, I can't remember who he was referencing, but also this idea that as the Kurgans and all the environmental stuff that was happening, some for the better, some for the worse, and that Semitic tribes were also emerging out of the desert and uh, and everyone was sort of, there was a confluence of people and culture in this particular zone. And their experience of mother nature, Gaia, was very different. Cruel, harsh, not providing, right? They're shepherds, they have sheep, they're not cultivating the land in the same way. And so you think about how that consciousness informs our relationship. And then, yes, across time, you see the emergence of, like, nature and woman. Women, you know, matter is mater, mother, this like need to dominate, control women, the planet, all creative functions. I think in part because it's pretty magical that women create life, right? And we can take that, we can take that away. So the seven deadly sins, and yes, and I, and I got to the seven deadly sins because I was starting with envy, going back to this idea of like, what do we want? And when we see other women doing things that maybe we haven't identified when they're pushing against a dream that we hold for ourselves and our instinct is to lash out. So I started with envy and I was like, maybe envy is it. Maybe this is sort of the foundation of internalized patriarchy. And then I was like, where does it come from? And I was like, All oh, right, it's a sin. What what were those? You know, my dad's Jewish, my mom's a recovering Catholic. I did not grow up in religion at all. Very secular nature-based childhood. And I was like, what are those? And then I looked at them and I was, shit, this is the list, you know? So they are sloth, pride, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, anger, or wrath. And I was like, oh my God, this is a punch card. This is what all women, this is what we police ourselves against in a way that men. So i Thought they must be in the Bible. Where are they in the Bible? And then I realized, oh, wait, they're not in the Bible at all. They came out of the fourth century from the Egyptian desert, specifically at the hand of a monk named Evagrius Ponticus, who incidentally is also credited with some of the earliest parts of the Enneagram. And he codified them or wrote down what he called eight demonic thoughts, but demon meaning something entirely different at that time, not the demon that we would think of today, but distraction, things that pull you out of prayer or your relationship with God. So not sort of the hell, the hellish idea that we would have now. And I believe that these thoughts were in rotation. These are these clearly, I don't think he created them or invented them wholesale. I actually think that they were part of the gospel of Mary. So Mary Magdalene's gospel, this is all happening at the same time that the New Testament is being codified, within decades. And at that time, there were all of these gospels in rotation. Some were then deemed heretical and destroyed and others made it into canon. And Mary's did not make it into canon, but was recovered in the recent past and in, in the last hundred years, really. But I think that that's what he was pulling from. And he wrote down these eight thoughts. There were eight, not seven. And one of the thoughts was sadness. That one was lost. It, was, it became sloth. It became really apathy. But not, not, that's not how we think of sloth in its current, the way that we police it in ourselves today. We, now we think of it as laziness. But sadness fell off the list. And I actually include it in the book because I believe sadness, this fear of sadness and its feminine qualities, Evagrius gave it a feminine soul, is what's destroying men, this disconnection from feeling. I think its primary symptom. Is toxic masculinity, but so the sins. So Evagrius wrote this prayer book, this little chapbook. It w- was in rotation amongst monks. It was passed on to all these desert fathers, John Cassian, etc. And then in 590, Pope Gregory gave a homily, a very famous homily for women, because in it he described. The seven deadly sins as as the cardinal vices. That's when he made the list. And he assigned them all to Mary Magdalene. This is the homily when he conflated her with the woman who anoints Jesus' feet with her hair, who was not actually called a prostitute in the Bible either. But he said that was Mary Magdalene and she was a prostitute. And that's where her reputation as a penitent prostitute came from. And she wore that reputation until recent decades. And the reason is because in the New Testament, in a few different, I think in all of the books, or at least three of them, Mary Magdalene is described as the one from whom Jesus cast seven demons, which in today's imagination sounds like he exorcised her, which the etymology of exorcism is swear out. But scholars think, well, okay, first of all, if she was rebalanced by Jesus, then she has to be sort of the cleanest, purest, like otherwise he has no skills, guys. And others think that he was simply rebalancing her chakras. Like she, he was identifying a chakra system or ta- speaking to that. But that's why Pope Gregory I assigned them to her. And I think it's so, I think for so many women, that's when our fate was sealed as the carriers of depravity and sort of the source of sin and obviously we have adam and eve and that story which was a that that story is a sumerian myth about the goddess that was re retold in the old testament and there was no snake or if the snake the snake might have been there but i think snakes were friendly like an, a symbol of the goddess and regeneration yeah there death was death. no like you're doomed yeah. So that's, a, that's I think that it's a fascinating story because certainly I think the way that they've invaded our culture and the other interesting slight reason that I think that they became so catchy culturally and, and Aquinas put their in Summa theologica, like they're part of Catholicism, certainly. But Pope Gregory is the one who lifted the edict against iconography. So wasn't a very literate population. And so before, per the Old Testament, you couldn't create religious iconography. And he changed that. So we started to see their really good illustrative concept. And that's why we see so much of Mary Magdalene as the penitent prostitute, too. Well, I think it's funny. Ian, the sex therapist, when he read read confessions he was like this sounds like a lot of my sex addicted patients the way he talks about sexuality and women and lust and his own mind um and yes that's where sexuality became problematic it was not it's not like jesus doesn't talk about sex he certainly doesn't condemn it he doesn't con- condemn many of the issues that we he doesn't condemn abortion he doesn't condemn homosexuality like none of this was, there's one instance where he talks about how some men, essentially some men will choose not to marry. And then people forget that the other context, I think he calls them eunuchs. And somehow that became like picked up as like, no, he's talking about celibacy. And it's like, no, even the whole virgin, the virgin mother, I think people don't understand what that means metaphysically. They take it very literally. And he had biological roots. You know, this isn't about the depravity of women at all. It's pretty wild, the game of telephone. And but you also, you know, I have some some I I understand it, you know, and we see it now like people are terrified of uncertainty. We're desperate for control. We under want to understand what's going to happen and we want to keep ourselves safe. There is that instinct towards domination and control it's and it's understandable it's just not acceptable and we have to let sort of the creative chaos the feminine emerge otherwise as we see on our planet we're fucked and you can't suppress her like that's the other thing it doesn't work
3: no 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 she'll grow vines all over the place until you can't even see what society was (laughs) goodbye (laughs) <laughs> no. So I loved that you said it was a wild game of telephone. And going back to how we opened this conversation about what is salvageable and what is good and true of the masculine paradigm that was distorted into a patriarchal paradigm. And what can we, like, instead of burning it all to the ground, what is the wisdom that we can still cultivate and get rid of all of the other shadow stuff? Yeah. Like, and then with this i mean just the fact that mary magdalene studied this in herself or that mary magdalene wrote about these to me that symbolizes that there is actually a really beautiful wisdom within these quote unquote seven deadly sins but maybe they're not seven deadly sins they're just like yeah the, like you said like seven things you could possibly do to disconnect from your highest truth or spirituality, you know, like ways of getting slightly lost (laughs) with with love, you know? And so I want to, now that you've like looked at like the social context and how it was distorted as an oppressive lens, I would love to hear about the study of like, you know, how you entered into this, like how women have been divided through envy, like what is the what are the nuggets of wisdom within these that you have found inside of yourself when you get rid of all the trash and oppressive bullshit on top?
0: Yeah. so I think that the sins, which I don't even I don't know where deadly. I think that's like a Hollywood thing even at this point. But the sins are essential human impulses. They are sort of who we are, particularly in these bodies. And I think what we also see culturally and recognize as a a massive theme, which goes back to this idea of revolting against nature, trying to suppress her, is our deep fear of and hatred toward the body, right? And this idea that spirituality, it's like in our heads and we're trying to go up there, we're trying to go up and You know, heaven's up high, not down here in the body, in this depraved area that we need to master, condemn, and deny. And that's a a massive theme in our culture still. And it's both. It's like up and down, up and down. Yes, like spirit is all around us and outside of us, and it's also in us. And so as I worked through this book, it was a major therapy process for myself to identify all of it, gluttony, the way that I punish my body my whole life, the dysmorphia that, you know, I think I I feel like it's very rare to find a woman who isn't slightly dysmorphic about her body or who doesn't exist on this continuum of permitting and restricting and permitting and restricting. And I'll be good today because I was bad yesterday. Even, you know, the language that we use about our bodies, good bodies, bad bodies, greed, you know, this fear of money, this feeling of like money isn't for me or money is base and gross when really money is like another energy. It's another current. It's another currency that animates our society. And women need more money. And we do well when we have money and we redistribute it. We're more philanthropic. But there is, we're, we're, you know, there's, is this myth of scarcity for us that is certainly delimiting and, and a culture that hasn't been generous. But as I went through all of them, lust was a really difficult chapter to write. Anger, we're not, we do not like angry women. I think we all recognize this, particularly in a cultural sphere. You're really only allowed to be angry on behalf of other victimized people, maybe on occasion. And that has long history. So it was an incredibly therapeutic process to identify this in myself and then not in some ways, unroot it and pull it out. But really, the way that I started to understand the sins was like, they are just actually GPS points. These are a navigational guide to come closer to ourselves. And it's not that I'm saying in this book, like, oh, every woman should be greedy, lustful, you know, da 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 It's sure. I mean, I think part of it is a freedom to be however you want to be. But it's also saying, like, come in, we all need to come into balance. This self-denial, self-abnegation, this restriction is unnatural. And it doesn't mean that we should, you know, it's hard to, like, advocate for greed, for example, in a culture where we have so much ecological credit card debt and, like, such a materialist, consumerist society. It's hard to be like, yes, women should be greedy, but women should need more money. We need enoughness. We need security. We need safety, et cetera. And so. And time, I feel like that's yeah, a currency. Time, space. Time.
3: To care for ourselves. Course,
0: yes, a thousand percent. And so I think that the sins are, in the way that Mary Magdalene and her gospel for people who are Mary Magdalene nuts when Jesus talks about sort of descending before he ascends, he talks about encountering these seven powers and these seven forms of wrath. And I think that those are the sins in a much more expanded, full, fascinating way. And that's what I think that they were talking about in a way that became entirely reduced by these single words. But The sins in of themselves in their simplest form are things for us to grapple with. And again, there's no prizes. There's no sort of like you're perfect, but to really like have a relationship with them and understand what we use them as whetstones in order to figure out who we are, how to serve, what we want, and to have desire and have wants and get our needs met. And show up in the world fully and in balance, and men too. That's a whole nother book. Shane, I'm going to pass to you in
3: just a second, but I got to jump in on something and I'm going to pass to you. I'm touching something really potent as you're speaking, Elise. And it's this like feeling that it's like the distortion of the, primal energies that these powers can be right become our own wrath towards ourselves right and so like for instance like the desire like are women's women even touching their desire for more which is such a natural desire more rest more peace more financial resource more support women can feel guilty it's the distortion it's the it's the that's the trauma in the power right Mm -hmm. And I was touching that in me like, oh, I'm greedy because I want this. And so women don't even allow themselves to, to touch this and want
1: this. And now I'm going to tag team to and go. One of the things that has interested me about, you know, if we just talk about money or abundance since joining the Global Sisterhood is that we have this value system currently that is money. That's how we value things in our society. We pay for things with money. But how could we possibly even begin to feel valued when moms are unpaid, when women's work is unpaid? So it's like we're not valued by the value system for the job that we're doing, you know, but everyone else is for any job. And so it always brings me back to this point of like, if we don't stop being the good girl, you know, complicit in our society that has all of these things that are essentially harming us, then how are we going to change the fabric of our society? How are we actually going to do it? Because we can't do it alone. That's with certainty. Yeah, so I'm curious about, you know, this this call to action through the book. It's like, what are you wanting women to take away from this? Like, what kind of force are you hoping to instill in them to move out of that?
0: Yeah, well, my biggest hope Dream for the book is that it makes visible what the system of internalized misogyny and internalized patriarchy actually looks like. And it might not be complete. There might be other systems that are that emerge that are a better proxy for this. But I think that it's a good start. And I think collectively, and I've I've workshopped the book with a few groups at this point. And even just talking about it, Envy, for example you can see sort of this dawning awareness. You see women suddenly start waking up to all of this invisible, insidious programming. And it gives it a name and a structure. And so my hope for this book is that we could somehow adopt it, whether people read the book or not. Of course, I hope they read the book. But even just the suggestion of it being enough for people to be like, oh, I see, I understand right now that I am not asking for a raise or promotion because I don't want to be seen as greedy or all the other ways in which we sort of immediately self-restrict or start, you know, go by this, this programming or this operational guide about what a good woman looks like. You know, even this instinct of like, well, if I get more money, then that means someone else isn't going to get more money. And, or someone else is going to get less. Like We think of all of these things as finite. And it's interesting, money, because I think that this is one of the sort of existential rubs that we're up against in this capitalist society. Yes, money is a primary energy. Money in of itself is neutral. But I think that we have a lot of anxiety about what it's doing to our world. And men see it as Boundaryless and up and to the right, or that's sort of the patriarchal idea. Like everything needs to grow. It needs to grow, grow, grow up and to the right, exponential growth, unsupportable growth. And I think that women, because we're bound by the physical reality of our bodies, by that way that we cycle with the moon, that we are, I think, deep inherent relationship with planet Earth and all of that goddess energy, there's the part of us that's like, no, this is not true, right? This is a mirage and this is true. There is no such like unlimited money bound by material thing. It's like, that's the rub, I think, that this like, the way that money shows up in our culture in terms of yachts and cars and bigger houses and more things. I think for women is like, a, but that's, not up and to the right. You know, we're bound by this planet, by the body. So I just hope that women together can start talking about these things. And I think a big part of it is like doing what you guys are doing, creating forums or the emergence of sisterhood, which was how we used to do light together. And now there's this wariness competition feelings of scarcity that has emerged in patriarchy where women have been not only made strangers but we've been made competitive and enemies particularly because of these ideas of scarcity there's only room for one you know this it's pervasive but i think it's prevented women from gathering and telling the truth about our lives and examining or being even aware of any of this programming to begin with, unfortunately. But we can change it. And part of it is like giving voice, to, airing it out and giving voice to it and finding it in our bodies.
1: I could just have a whole conversation about money. Lauren knows. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting, like what you were sharing about that there's so much scarcity. Yesterday, I was getting a face treatment done with a nurse. And this weekend, I was learning about minimum wage. We were at this beautiful conference called Bioneers, so shouting them out. And there was a woman who was having a a beautiful talk, very passionate talk about minimum wage. And she's all about raising minimum wage. She's been working on it for 20 years. And when I was sharing about this with this woman yesterday, she got really offended. Because as a nurse, she had to pay to go to school. And she has student debt. And, you know, she doesn't make that much more than minimum wage. And so she's like, well, that's really unfair to people that had to go to school, that took on this debt and all these kinds of things. But what she wasn't considering, which was like the point, and it was it was a beautiful to have this conversation because I got to see like a real time example of what the opposition looks like, you know, when really we should be on the same team, was that actually maybe she needs to get paid more money or we should subsidize the people that are going to nursing school because they're taking care of the sick ones in our society. Yeah. Or like there's something that we can do to to make it right. So it's not that these things are problems without solving. It's just that we haven't been asking the right questions. We haven't been, you know, creating the systems that make these kind of conversations possible so that we can come up with these solutions.
0: A thousand percent. And we live in a culture, a, such a cruel culture in the United States, at least, with no security net for people. You know, it's things like universal basic income. If we could ensure that, there's a certain ideology that's so pervasive. One, it's just these hazing cycles that we pass on generation to generation. I didn't get that. Why should she? I didn't get maternity leave. Why should she? It's really hard to break these cycles, particularly because we don't, talk about them or bring them up in the way that you guys were having a, a frank conversation about it. But but to have something like universal basic income where people knew that they would be OK, that they would survive, that, um, you know, when they look at that, that's the other thing about money is when when social scientists look at money and happiness. I think it's. Ninety five thousand dollars if you don't have kids um, more obviously for families, but much more than that and happiness decreases and much less than that. And there's some real pain and suffering. I think it's like, I I can't remember the exact number maybe under 50,000. It starts to become, I think particularly if you're older, if you're a student, it's one thing or a 20 something, but for older people, but it's, Strange to me in this haves and have not culture that we can't figure out how to ensure the basic necessities so that people can take a breath. And this idea that people are inherently lazy or that they wouldn't work or they wouldn't want to contribute or do anything with their lives is such a lie. It's such a fallacy. People want to have purpose, they want to make their lives matter and be meaningful. And, but it's such an insidious idea that people just want, are on the take. And again, I think that's a patriarchal, they just want some, you know, patriarchal idea that drives me nuts because it deprives people of their basic dignity and what it is to be human.
1: And then we allow people, Lauren, I'm gonna let you come in in a second, but then we allow people, you know, like. Jeff Bezos and like these multi-jillionaires capitalize on everything. So it's like, you're worried about the lazy person? I know. Like, you're missing the mark. You're not seeing the guy over there who's wiping out family businesses across America, you know, that basically set up a funnel between here and China that like, like, how could you miss that? And this is the thing I just don't understand. And if we were taxing these people appropriately, then we would have the resources to pay women a universal basic income. We'd have the resources to help this woman have an increased pay
0: or subsidized nursing or whatever the thing is. Yep, We don't That's believe in thing. welfare for people, but, but we sure believe in corporate welfare. It's wild. This country is wild.
3: It's interesting because... It's like the the sin of sloth or like apathy. We have become so entrenched in the system that we've forgotten that we have power in it and that we have creativity in it. We're just like, oh, what can I do? What can I do? And so one of the things at this conference was about actually cultivating talent in people who have these ideas, who want to think about solutions, who are like, I I can build this business that's transforming you know, batteries into non-toxic battery, like people who have this like desire to create solutions and think about what we possibly can do. And I feel like these wounds of the feminine that instill this lack of worth, right? Actually just create apathy and like, what, what's the point? What could I do? And so that leads me to my next question. And then we'll, we'll ask you one final question after this. What guidance do you give to the women listening who have all of this power and all of this beauty and all of this potential inside of them? What guidance do you give them?
0: I think it starts with deep excavation. And I think that the book can be a framework or even just a simple wants and needs list at the beginning of this process. And actually, I know you've had Chris Ischumacher on the podcast, but I was going through a lot of different transitions in my life. And I was talking to her and I was like, I just, I'm, more, you know, again, this breathless scarcity of like, I don't, I don't know what I'm, what I, I'll ever get what I need. I, I, you know, and she was like, what do you need? She was like, people come to me with this all the time and they can't actually articulate what they need because they've never written it down or spent time. It's just this, I don't have enough, but what does enough look like? And can you crystallize it? Because the divine is very good at serving needs. Maybe they don't always give you everything you want, but they're great at serving needs. So for me, that was a very powerful exercise just to move out of this frantic not enoughness and who am I and da, 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 and just start writing it down. What are my needs? What are my wants? And what I found was like, my needs are manageable actually not terrifying, achievable. I don't have that many wants outside of my needs is also what I figured out. I was like, oh, I don't actually really want that many things besides world peace and you know a lot of social cultural stuff. But the process of going through each chapter and examining myself, my, and obviously it was a, I was writing this book, so I was writing. And I recognize not everyone is a writer. I think people can do it verbally. They can do it on voice memo, however it works. But to go through for sloth, like all of the things that you're performing in the world and doing for other people, this inability to give ourselves an opportunity to rest, this sort of self-flagellation, flogging, cattle prodding that we do to ourselves. This is a big one for me as a sort of workaholic and the way that we venerate that and have those expectations, particularly of women, is pronounced. But going through each of them And starting to articulate, like, what would I want in the context of this sin and this container? Like, where am I blocked? Where am I stopping myself? Where am I policing myself? What would feel right? What would feel balanced? It's deep personal work, but I think it's incredibly, I think if you let your subconscious talk, let yourself talk, like you let your body talk. I think that women would be shocked at sort of both what comes up and then also what's available and the ways that so many of us are self-restricting, but don't need to. And this is what's actually really exciting not to, and I, throughout the book, I don't rain on men. I love men. I'm married to a man. I have two boys. I have a brother, et cetera. I love men. And I happen to know many men who are balanced in their feminine, you know, in a really beautiful way. And I'm also encouraging them to stretch into that more. You love men. Yeah, I love men. But really, women are superior. I'm just going to say it. And, you know, we're biologically, we're more durable, we're more resilient. We live longer. Obviously, we can make babies with our bodies. We also have been outperforming men throughout the globe in school for a century. The statistics are stunning, sort of when they look at young girls in terms of their vocabulary, their adeptness with language, their memory. It's pretty stunning, actually. And again, I'm not promoting sort of the dominance of women over men, but women are badasses. And we are also incredibly hard workers. And I'm not saying that men aren't, but the women I know are running Laps, lapse around men. And I feel like so much of our energy is just spent propping them up and making them feel good, you know, for less. They're doing less. Just is. This is the reality of our lives. I think a lot of women are nodding right now. Men, I love you too, but sorry, women are amazing. And so I think as we start to let ourselves off the leash And we start to show up for each other more importantly and recognize that I can model my freedom after yours and that whatever you achieve is not constraining or limiting what I achieve, but could be a model for my own growth and expansion. And the more we let that be our consciousness, watch out. Go team. (laughs) (laughs) No, but watch us
1: watch out I mean I just receive everything that you said and I just want to like echo it a hundred times over it's just I love hearing you share and all the wisdom that you've brought here to the podcast and so for our final question if you were to allow the great mother herself Panchamama our earth to speak
0: through you to our audience what would she have you say What comes to mind is this sounds more ominous than I think it. But there are no safe places, but there are safe people, and I think women know we know, and now it's time to remove the uh, the don't from the way that we speak in the world. I don't know. To I know, we know, and. On the flip side, I think for boys, it's to remove the "don't" from "I don't care." They care, and this is what I want to see for women. I know, and what I want to see from men is I care. I feel like I want to clap to that one. Maybe a <laughs> slow clap.
3: Thank you so much, Elise. This has been such an enriching conversation. So fun when you. When you dropped off for a second, Shane was like, it's so good to just meet another team member. So go team, go team. We love the team. And to all of you listening, we love you too. And we encourage you to go check out Elise's book. Elise, do you want to talk about launch, all of that?
0: Yeah. So it's out on May 23rd. In the U.S., Canada, and I believe that it's the same pub date in U.K., Australia, New Zealand, from Bloomsbury, and there are other countries coming. I just don't know all the pub dates, but available wherever you get your books. Come hang out on the podcast, pulling the thread if you like. There's definitely some, there's probably some good overlap in audience. We're interested in many of the same Things. And I'm on Instagram, although I'm, I would much rather not be on Instagram and just be on Substack, but working on it. Thank you so much. It's been so fun. Thank you. Likewise.
2: I would love to introduce our new sponsor, GoddessWell.co. GoddessWell creates the highest quality of women's products for your highest self specifically formulated by women, for women to complement our inherent self-healing power, specifically focusing on PMS, menopause, hormone and moon support and urinary tract health. So what I love about this company is the intentionality within the medicine and the high, high quality of CBD that's within each capsule So there's various lines, there's the Harmony line for harmony and mood, there's the Radiance line for PMS and menopause relief, there's the Serenity line for UTI relief, and each capsule has two times more CBD than in any other capsule on the market, plus high quality essential oils to target and support relieving all of these various women's hormonal and sexual health issues. So for me, every day I take the Harmony pill for mood and hormone aid and I say a little prayer and I connect with the medicine and I connect with the aliveness of the essential oils and I ask for help with what I'm going through right now in my woman's health journey and I feel like I'm giving myself the care and the attention I need. So what's so cool about Goddess Well and Marcella, the owner's connection with Global Sisterhood is she's a Global Sisterhood facilitator herself and she has made it available for the Global Sisterhood community to buy one product and get one free using the code SISTERHOOD. That means we get to buy one for ourselves and we get to buy one with the condition of giving it to a sister, to spread the love, to spread the health, and to deepen our circle of women who are healing ourselves and transforming the world. So go to goddesswell.co, use the code SISTERHOOD and buy one and get one free to give to a
1: friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Time of the Feminine podcast. It is such an honor every time to be able to host these conversations and to share the stories of the beautiful people we get the opportunity to interview. And so if you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a review. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and write a nice note, or you can do so on Spotify by Leaving Stars. We so appreciate every single one of you that's taken the effort to go out and to share with others and with our community about... How this podcast has touched you. It really means so much to us. And for us, this is a labor of love. And so thank you for giving back in that way.